So I think we're going to go, um, I'm sure you'll be sorry to hear this, but we'll go a little faster today. I, you know, I think we're going too fast, but I really do. But all right, that's life. Um, you don't, I do, we'll compromise, we'll go a little bit faster. Um, and for next week, I'll just say I'll put this on latte for the people not here. Um, but for um, Monday, what you should read is the poem by Wordsworth called Ode, Intimations of Immortality from Recollections of Early Childhood, um, often known as the Intimations Ode. In this book, it will be on page, I am going to start saying 200 um, in the hopes that I'm right. Um, ode, Ode. Um, Ode Wordsworth. Yes, by 200 I meant page 796. Um, it's like that Matt Clay thing. Um, so, page 796. Uh, it's a longish poem, and we'll probably spend the week on it. Um, but even that, even you will think, is rather fast. Um, we may not. Um, after that, um, in the following week, we will do um, a poem by James Merrill called Lost in Translation. Um, and then we'll have vacation, and you'll get lost in vacation. Um, yeah, I think that makes sense. I should tell you, um, on I won't be here February 16th. That's a Thursday morning, and what we will do is we will have an optional makeup class during on the reading day, um, unless there's some other time that people would prefer to do it. Um, but I have to go give a talk somewhere. So February, whatever, yeah, February 16th, the Thursday before vacation, uh, we will not be having class. Um, all right, so what we were talking about, this is, uh, um, these are a bunch of poems that I think, oh, did I, did I give these to you? Oh, no, I Xeroxed them, but I didn't. Oh, no, I did, there are just so few of you. Where are you? Oh, well, you guys are here. That's, in poetry, you speak to absent people as though they're present. And in teaching, you speak to present people as though they're absent. Um, I know it's not tweet worthy, but it is early. Um, OK, what we were talking about in um, Bishop's version of Casabianca is love. That is her claim, her claim's the wrong word, her assertion um, that the boy who stood on the burning deck is love. Or maybe it would be better to say that what love is, is the boy who stood on the burning deck. Um, one of the things that uh, you have to think about or consider um, in poetry when you have some kind of metaphorical um, connection made between things. Um, often with some form of the word is, like loves, love is, loves the boy stood on the burning deck, um, is which is the thing that the metaphor is about and which is the metaphorical description of that thing. Um, what a metaphor, by definition, everyone knows or thinks they know what a metaphor is. Um, so a metaphor is a pile of burning coals in a dark forest, right? Everyone knows that? Okay, good. Um, is that helpful to say that about it? That a metaphor is a pile of burning coals in a dark forest? Not at all? <laughs> um, 
Okay. It's, um, I think it's helpful, even though I just made it up randomly, um, because it would focus you on something within a dark forest of potential meanings. It would, it would tell you what to focus on. Um, more generally, a metaphor is you can always tell the difference. Well, okay, th everyone knows what a metaphor is. If you don't, just it's fine, but everyone does. Yes? Okay. Um, everyone know what a simile is? What's the difference between them? Isabel. Simile makes the comparison obvious by using like graphs. Yeah, so the simile makes a comparison. You said the comparison, but I'm going to change it to a comparison. Obvious by, by, by using like or as. What's a metaphor like? Why it's like a pile of burning coals in a dark forest. Um, so a simile uses um, a word which makes a comparison obvious and it makes it obvious by drawing out, by claiming similitude. A simile actually says something. X is similar to Y. Um, a metaphor doesn't claim, doesn't essentially describe what it is. A metaphorical sentence isn't a sentence where there's any word in the sentence that would tell you it's a metaphor. It's only the meaning that tells you that it's a metaphor. Um, like or as, that's a simile, and we find that all the time in ordinary speech. Um, people are always saying, you know, um, it was, it was, um, it felt like being um, um, blindsided um, by a ton of bricks. Um, and as soon as you use the word like, everyone is like, that's a simile. I'm like, that's a simile. Um, whereas a metaphor, there's nothing in a metaphorical sentence that would tell you simply through its vocabulary that it's a metaphor. You have to know the meanings of the words. If you're reading French, let's say, and your French isn't great, um, if you read a word, if you're reading a sentence in French and the word come or ensique appears in the sentence, you can know that that's a simile even if you don't know one of the things that is come another thing. Um, the word comme says simile, announce a simile to you. If you're reading French and you don't know one of the nouns and you, you see the word is, A, you don't know that that's a metaphor or whether it's a literal statement. So a way to put this is to say that, um, and this is a really important absolute difference between metaphors and similes, metaphors are always literally untrue and similes are always literally true. That's a strong way of putting it, but it's a true way of putting it. When something is a metaphor, what it's saying is false. Now, we can understand a truth behind that falsity, but if something is a metaphor, what it's saying is false. If something is a simile, what it's saying is true, simply by virtue of the fact that everything in the universe is in some way like any other thing in the universe. Um, there's always something that makes one thing in the universe like another thing in the universe, even if only that they're in the same universe. So similes are always true. Um, if you say that Mitt Romney is like a glass of milk, um, it's true. Without need it, and, and there are many, many ways that Mitt Romney is like a glass of milk. Um, <laughs> But um, it's also true of Obama, and it's also true of um, the palace of Minos in Crete, 
they're all like a glass of milk, and they're all like each other. Um, how they're like each other, that could be an interesting question. Um, but they are all like each other. But metaphors are always false. And if you're reading a sentence and it's not false, it's not a metaphor. Sometimes we'll find failed metaphors in poetry. And what a failed metaphor will often be is a sentence that you realize was meant to be false, but is in fact true. Um, and therefore, it falls flat just because, yeah, that's true, you'll say. Um, and if it's true, it then falls, it will tend to fall flat. What makes something a metaphor is that it's false and that you then have to overcome that falsehood. Um, because metaphors are false, it's often hard to see which of the two objects, which of the two things being said to be the same as each other um, is the one actually being focused on. So sometimes we'll say um, the, coal, the metaphor is a, coal, is a pile of coals burning in a dark forest. And sometimes we might begin a sentence like saying, a pile of coals burning in a dark forest is a metaphor for the United States' relation to the rest of the world, let's say. Um, that's being too cutesy, using metaphors about metaphor. But the point is that you can imagine a haiku-like poem. Let's, let's just imagine a haiku-like poem that goes, um, a bald head um, with sparse um, hair, a snowy mountain um, above the tree line. So. There's a haiku, and we don't know whether it's about a person whose head looks like a mountain or a mountain that looks like a head. Now, there are ways, of, there are ways typically in haiku that we can tell which is being focused on. We would say something like, a bald head with sparse hair, this snowy mountain above the tree line. And then what that tells you is that the thing that the poem's about is the mountain, the word this is what does that, picks it out as what the poem's about. And the other thing is what the mountain is being metaphorically related to. But you won't always find that. Um, Ezra Pound has a famous poem whose title I won't tell you, although some will, some will know, but don't say what it is. But the poem itself, it's a two-line poem, and it's a kind of introduction of the haiku into English poetry, although it's not actually a haiku. Um, the apparition of these faces in the crowd petals on a wet black bough. So that could be, how many people know the title of the poem? OK, so um, everyone else, observe you two who know, who know which, is, which is which, um, how other people interpret. Um, is that about a crowd of people, or is that about petals on a bow? Is, is Pound saying, um, a crowd of people, to me, looks like petals on a wet black bow, and now I'm turning it into a simile by saying that. Or is he saying, here's a wet black bow with petals, and they look like a crowd of people with their faces looking out at me, something like that. How many people think that? If you were to put a this into the poem, that is, if you were to say, this is what this poem is actually about, well, how, how would you title the poem? Let's put it that way. Um, your choice is more or less, but you have, you have some choice. Your choice is more or less um, the crowd I saw this morning or the wet black bow 
that I see right outside my window. Um, let's just go around. Danielle. Can I choose the second? The wet black bow. Yeah. Okay. Um, give it a different title if you want, but yeah. Okay, yeah. Title, okay. okay. Maya. I would say the crowd. The crowd. Okay. Faith. The wet black bow. The second one. Wet black bow. Yeah. You could just title it, it the second good. one. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, um, Rachel. Rachel. I feel like the second one only because it's the less, I don't know, as weird as this is, I think I'm saying it because I feel like it's the like, less obvious one, but I want it to be the first one. You want it to be a crowd of people, but it's less obvious if it's a wet black bow. Yeah. That's really interesting because there's also a kind of shuttling back and forth effect of metaphor. Um, that's one reason we use it, because of the possibility of shuttling back and forth. A crowd of people that's like a wet black bow, that's like a crowd of people, which it's actually kind of like a wet black bow. Yeah. No, if you get that, then you get, you get um, incessant motion in a poem, incessant vibration, which is a good thing. Um, Matt? Uh, I suppose, I guess the first one. Is that what you want it to be, or what you're guessing? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, whatever. Um, Nick? Crowd. Petals, you know. Um, Rob? Crowd. And Ben? I'd say Wet Black Bow because it sounds like a good name for a poem. <laughs> yeah, a crowd of people that's out today sounds kind of yeah. lame. It's a good name for a rock band, the Wet Black Bows. <laughs> um, okay, do you remember the title exactly? Not exactly. Do you remember the title exactly? In a station at the Metro. So the title is what focuses it in Pound's poem. Without the title, you wouldn't know. And I think we broke about 50-50, um, which shows that the metaphor is perfectly balanced um, if we're breaking 50-50. Maya? The example is hard, too, because um, haikus are traditionally about nature. Yeah. But then modern poets are more likely to talk about people than nature. And cities. And cities. Yeah, um, exactly. So in a way, the fact that haiku are traditionally about nature, you know, when it, do people know the rules of haiku? It's not only 17 syllables, but you have to mention a season. Um, most people ignore that part of haiku these days. Um, but in classic haiku, the season or a season is always mentioned in the haiku. And that's partly what will make it about nature. Um, Pound kind of finesses that by making it about weather, or at least by suggesting nature um, in the idea of, of um, the petals on the bough, which would make it springtime, um, early spring, presumably. I think one aspect of the poem is if you say um, that shows what metaphor can do. Um, it is in this book, by the way, that poem, I feel confident. Page, I'm going to say 1,200. Um, but one thing that it does is once you know that the title is um, in a station at the metro, um, they have a weird way of alphabetizing um, the word I. Um, imperfect imperial in a duplex, oh, come on, in a coin in a dark. That would be a pity. Like, no. Maybe it's just a station at the metro. Let us find Ezra Pound. Mary Moore, D.H. Lawrence, William Carlos Williams, Wallace Stevens, Ezra Pound, there we go. In a station at the Metro, why it's not, and it's 12-something, 12 1297. <coughs> I'm so good. Um, so just so you know, it's on page 1297. Um, 
the apparition of these faces in the crowd petals on a wet black bow, 1913, published 1916. Um, so just that poem probably makes you think that it's a wet day in Paris, even though the wetness only belongs to what's now what we now call the vehicle of the metaphor. It's the wet it's the wet black bow that's wet, but I think it's hard to get a picture of the faces in the crowd unless you think of them in kind of wet coats and and the. Um, um, just, just it's a wet day. People are are in the metro station, so they're dry, but they're still wet. Um, the way people are in subways, it's part of your knowledge of urban life. Um, what it's like to be in a subway on a wet day. Do people get that impression from the poem? I think it would be real. You don't. You don't at all. I don't get the feeling that it's like literal wetness. I guess it's more like the emotion of the people, or like just like the feeling of being like crowded and like kind of small and. I don't know, for some reason, the, the wetness itself is a metaphor for me instead of being through. Yeah, but there, I, what I would say is that um, it would be hard, I think it would be hard to picture this, and maybe that's just to say that there's emotional coloring here. Mm -hmm. It would be hard to picture this as occurring um, on a beautiful spring day in Paris, um, unless somehow the beauty of the spring day simply disappeared once you go into the metro station. Because yeah. he doesn't because he doesn't use any kind of uh, preposition between them. You yeah. don't know what the connection is. Right. But I think he, he makes use of the smallest possible amount of words to paint a very vivid picture. Right. I imagine people in it just me, people in black slickers all wet in the station. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I think I think that that's the way the metaphor kind of um, uh, leaks into what, as I say, what we call the vehicle leaks into the tenor. So just vehicle and tenor, those are standard words for describing how metaphors work. Did, have people heard those before? They're metaphorical words. They're, in fact, mixed metaphors. The vehicle is the um, thing that is carrying the meaning, the um, thing that the, is not the literal meaning that's being said but the metaphor that is being used to carry that meaning. In this case, the vehicle would be the petals on a wet black bow. Um, he's not writing about petals on a wet black bow, but he's using petals on a wet black bow to carry the meaning that he is writing about, to, to convey that meaning to us. You convey things with a vehicle. So the tenor is what that meaning is or at least tends to. So when you use a metaphor, the thing that you're comparing something to or asserting that something is in a metaphor <coughs> is the vehicle. And the reason, the meaning you are attempting to convey by making the assertion that something is something else is the tenor. Um, Books are a load of crap. Anyone know who wrote that? Great poet, Philip Larkin, um, in his poem called Books. Um, books are a load of crap. Um, the vehicle is a load of crap. The tenor is, I really don't like books very much. Um, what they say is harmful and, um, and pointless. 
So that's a good example of an everyday kind of metaphor. Books are a load of crap. Where do you publish the poem? In a book. Yeah, no, no, the irony is, is palpable. Um, did, people, did people know Larkin? He has a famous poem called um, This Be the Verse. All right, well, um, I'm trying to think if there's a good metaphor in it. because um, No, it's got good similes, but not good metaphors. Um, Griffith's in here. It's sufficiently shocking that um, it's worth looking at. Yeah, page 16. I'm going to say 1657. Um, yep, page 1657. When you want. Okay, so in when we started talking about Bishop's version of Casabianca, um, most of you were taking the um, vehicle of the metaphor to be love and the tenor to be something like um, Hemans's poem, The Boy Stood on the Burning Deck, or at least Hemans's boy. That is, that um, here's this boy who stood on the burning deck, and um, that is, what he is is love. That's, he's so faithful that what you see there is a, the best way to describe him is love. Um, or at least the, what, what Hemans is trying to do is to describe that as love, that what the boy is doing, that's love, and therefore we should all um, have the same kind of love for our country's imperialist aspirations or whatever. Um, then, towards the end of class yesterday, we started saying, no, what if love is what this poem is really about? And the boy stood on the burning deck is the vehicle to which love is being, um, by which love is being conveyed, or by which the meaning of love is being conveyed. So if you take the poem as being about love, then we went a little further to think of love there as personified, as love has been personified for, <laughs> are you smiling at the poem? Yes. Um, how love has been personified um, for 2,000 and more years. Um, in figures like Eros or Cupid, do people know the difference between Eros and Cupid in mythology? They're, two, they're names for the same person, but what's the difference? One is Roman and one is Greek. Um, it's also that when we talk of Eros, we're usually, by convention, talking about um, Cupid as an adult. And when we're talking about Cupid, we're talking about Cupid when he was still a child. Um, so, so when Cupid grows up to um, be sexually involved with people himself, not only the cause of love in others, but himself a lover. Um, in particular, do people know the, um, the great story in which Cupid or Eros is a lover? What is it, Maya? Cupid and Psyche, which Keats wrote a poem about, his ode to Psyche. Um, then we tend, um, in modern day, where we have a choice between Greek and Latin names, we tend to call him Eros. Um, Eros is, just sounds like a more serious, less playful word, and that's um, and is where we get our idea of love and of the erotic and so on. Um, we don't say we don't say. Well, I'd really like to rent um, a cupidinous video for tonight. 
Um, rather, we'd like to rent an erotic video for tonight, or not, depending on our tastes. Um, so that um, seems, and, and the other way we'll, that you'll often find this allegorical figure described in English poetry is simply as love, um, sometimes in Latin poetry as amor. Um, love does this. Uh, amor winket omnia. People know what that means? What is it? Love conquers all. Love conquers all. Um, that's a metaphor. Um, but it's a metaphor because it personifies love as a conqueror. Um, and love will conquer all. So let's say that, that Bishop's poem is about um, love who gets personified. Love is the boy stood on the burning deck trying to recite the boy stood on the burning deck. He gets very much personified. And what he's trying to recite is a poem about faithfulness. So we could say, and then we're going to turn to some other examples, but we could say immediately that um, what we have here is a description of love going down in flames, but trying to recite a poem about faithfulness, having difficulty doing it, but despite the difficulty, persisting in an attempt to do it, even as love goes down in flames. So love is attempting to be faithful <coughs> in a situation where it is being destroyed. So ask yourself, even with, does that make sense simply as, as, as a first approximation of what might be going on in the poem? Um, maybe a first approximation of, of the way you were describing it yesterday also when you said it's about love. Um, so if that's a first approximation, then ask yourself what kind of backstory the poem is implying. And I think you would have to answer that the backstory is something like she, Bishop, is um, watching this, her love, the love that she and another person had, going down in flames. And what she is saying is that she's the one who's trying to keep it together but it's not being kept together. And she is experiencing this failure as pain, as dying on a burning ship. But she is experiencing that pain as faithfulness. That is, what makes it faithfulness is that she's being faithful despite the pain. She still wants the love. She still wants the love. She knows it's going, but she's not getting off the deck. And the way she's not getting off the deck is that she's stammering out elocution, namely this poem itself. Because if you say that stammering out elocution is a metaphor for writing poetry in a desperate situation, so desperate that you can't write poetry with any kind of facility or clarity. So desperate that poetry is an almost 
inarticulate cry, or at least a stammered cry, a desperate attempt to communicate and to express when you are failing to do so, which is what happens when love goes down in flames. You desperately try to communicate to the person who is leaving you, who is breaking up with you, who is ending the relationship. You desperately try to communicate to them, but you fail. And so this is a desperate communication, we could say, of the failure to be able to communicate well. It's a desperate communication of the desperateness of communication. And therefore, standing on the burning deck, stammering that the boy stood on the burning deck, saying that, but only stammering it as the ship goes down in flames, as the ship of love goes down in flames. That's what she's describing love as being for her right now. So the faithfulness of the boy, and she is very much not a boy. It really matters here that Bishop is female, but that the love she's addressing is the classical mythological figure of Eros, that is a boy or a man, someone who's male. In this case, a boy, Eros or love at the start, when it should all be happy. It really matters that Bishop is female, but is appealing now to a male allegory or representation or metaphor for love, the boy who stood on the burning deck, especially since it also really matters that she's out when she writes the poem and that the relationship that's going down in flames is a relationship with another woman with the woman of her life. So that to talk about the boy, love, who stood on the burning deck and was faithful means somehow that the boy isn't a metaphor for the person she loves. She loves love as well as loving this other woman who is leaving her, or for whom it's simply not working. I mean. A breakup like this is never, oh, I'm tired of you, I'm leaving. Um, but she loves love as well as loving the object of love. Or she's trying to be faithful to love, even as the object of her love is someone who's destroying the love they have for each other. So love somehow, this is, this is a really hard thing to describe, and that's why I brought in several poems that I think do describe it and that we'll look at in a second. But love somehow gets personified at the moment when the other person is leaving. It's as though that personification is the personification of the absence of a person. That you, that you still want to be there, that you want to be present. And the desperateness with which you want the presence of that person expresses itself as personification, not of the person who's gone. That's just fantasy. 
well, you're gone, but I'm fantasizing that you're here, and I'm really good at doing that, so it's okay. But rather, you're gone, and what's present now is a person, but that person is your absence. That somehow the personification of love, love is what goes down with the ship when no one else does. Now, there's a lot more in the poem, but that personification of love, I think, is our first entry into the poem. Maya? I think, without thinking, if you don't think about it a lot, that's a hard um, idea to come to because there's so much about like uh, the like classroom and mm -hmm. the like the recitation of the poem. Yeah. Um, but there's also the part about the the swimming sailors who wish they could be back on the boat. Yeah, and wish um, they had a platform too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and that, that makes me kind of think that um, it's like people who uh, like gave up on their love and like wish that they could like get back on the ship and try again and mm. like wish they had tried to hold, help hold Yeah, on yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. And I think that's absolutely right. And I think there's, I mean, there's a lot to this poem. Um, as I say, bishops sometimes work 20 years on a poem. Um, and one of the things, a general comment that I'll make is often people think that when um, other people like me spend so much time on a poem. We're finding we're reading into th into poems things that just aren't there. Um, you may have occasionally had that suspicion. Not in this class, I'm sure, but in um, your history as readers of literature and of poetry. Um, what we have to remember, and especially in this class, is that we're <coughs> reading everything we read in this class. Um, think I think that's going to be true. That everything that we read in this class. Um, was worked on at something like a hundred times as much time went into the work of writing those poems as we are going to spend in the, in the um, cases where we spend the longest time on a poem. Um, you can imagine that, well, you can imagine the fact that it took Blake five years to write Songs of Experience after he'd written Songs of Innocence. Um, it's only another, you know, 20 poems or so, which took him five years. And Blake could write really fast. Um, just shows you the kind of care and attention he put into it and how much poems deserve um, some kind of corresponding care and attention from us. A little bit it's like the difference between a photograph and a painting. Um, do people know Claude, the painter Claude? Um, <coughs> So one of the things about Claude, he's really, Claude Lorraine, but always called Claude. Um, what's especially striking about Claude, do you know? So if you go look at a Claude Lorraine painting, um, they're often very hard to look at, but the MFA has, has some. They're very hard to look at because they're these amazing landscapes, and the foreground is obvious. Um, but if you look in the background, the longer you look, the more tiny, tiny details you will see in the background. He will have... Um, a landscape and, and um, a large lake and behind the lake some mountains and you'll just say, okay, lake mountains. Um, but if you look, you'll see on the top of one of the mountains, um, almost microscopic on the painting, you'll see um, a shepherd with a dog walking. Um, almost microscopically, you will see um, far away a little town um, in a valley. Um, and that's the kind of thing that you can only see if you look at the painting centimeter by centimeter, square centimeter by square centimeter. Um, 
in a photograph, you would also have those things. But you would say, yeah, photograph, of course. And um, a photograph is an instantaneous, usually an instantaneous, um, uh, capturing of a visual scene. Um, and what's interesting about it is what the photographer would have instantaneously seen when she took the photograph. A painting, you know, and if you see like people on, on, in a distant town in a photograph where it's the foreground that matters, what you'll think about those people is the photographer didn't see them when she took the picture. But in Claude, you know that everything you see in the painting he put there. And the reason to spend so much time looking at his paintings is that everything that we find was something that he put there in order to be found. And that's a crucial difference between even super realist painting, maybe even especially super realist painting. Paintings that look like photographs, um, I think there's, there are a couple right now at the Rose. Um, there was a, there was a um, movement called super realism in the 60s and 70s, um, which some people still practice, which is to do paintings um, with such exquisite care that people will think they're photographs when they're displayed. Um, people will look at them and be amazed at their paintings. But why do that? It seems pointless. Why not just do the photograph? Well, one answer is that you know that the painter, there's nothing in the painting that the painter didn't put there. There's a human mind that put everything you see in the painting was put there to be seen. Nothing in the painting is accidental. And we can say the same about poems. They're not photographs. They're paintings. And everything that we study was something that the poet thought about. We may get wrong the point of those things, but they're all there after endless consideration. Um, so let's look at the Yeats poem. Actually, let's just quickly look at the Southall poem called The Burning Babe. Um, I think Bishop has this in mind. Um, it's not a great poem, but it's um, very powerful despite itself, I think. Um, Saville was a Jesuit priest um, in 16th century England um, at a time um, when being a Jesuit priest was, was rather dangerous. Um, and Sorry? No, I think I don't think he was, um, I don't think that, well, it was probably bad for his health, but not... Um, uh, not violently so. Um, at any rate, here's this poem with an amazing title, The Burning Babe. Um, it turns out to be an extended metaphor, um, or metaphysical conceit, as they call it. There are a bunch of metaphors in it, so it's worth reading it for that. But it's also worth reading it because it seems almost certain that Bishop must have been remembering this poem <coughs> when she wrote um, her version of Casabianca. Um, some of you probably already know, probably know, but um, most of you probably don't. Um, there was a time when everyone would have known this. Um, the, in the interpretation of dreams, Freud's best analysis of a dream, most amazing and powerful analysis of a dream, is um, the analysis of the dream that he calls the dream of the burning child. And um, do people know this? Is this familiar to anyone? Um, OK, well, the dream of the burning child is that um, a man, um, a young child has died. Um, this is true. This is what happens in reality. And his father is, um, is keeping vigil over his bed um, before burial. 
um, and also has a paid vigil keeper, as was the tradition. And the father goes into the other room, and there are candles around the corpse, and the father goes into the other room um, to get some sleep or falls asleep in the other room. Um, and um, he's asleep, and in his dream, the child comes to him and says, Father, can't you see that I am burning? And then he wakes up and sees that the paid vigil keeper in the other room has, has also fallen asleep and knocked one of the candles down around the bed, which is now burning the arm of the dead child. Um, and that, so that's the whole thing, is that in his dream, he dreamt that the child said to him, Father, can't you see that I am burning and that this woke him up? And then he saw that, in fact, um, he was woken up by some sense and reality of what was really going on. And Freud says um, the meaning of this moving dream is very clear, which is that the father wanted the child to be alive. And um, when he had some kind of sense by being fitfully asleep that in fact the child was burning, he imagined the child come to tell him this. But then um, Freud adds an extra turn, which is very powerful, which is um, Freud has a theory, which consult your own dreams to see if this is right, that any dream that you have will have something in it that was connected to something that happened to you the, de the day before. Um, Freud calls this <coughs> the day's residue. Um, so tonight you'll have a dream um, about me fumbling page numbers. And it'll just be, be folded into some elaborate and wonderful um, and spectacular fantasy world that you're dreaming. But a question of page numbers will come up. They won't be important, but they'll be there. That's what Freud calls the day's residue. Um, so does that, does that seem right to your own dreaming as you remember it? So, for, so the great turn that Freud makes on the dream of the burning child is to say that probably what this, the day's residue there or the week's residue probably in this case, was the onset of the illness. That probably the child came into the father's room with a fever. And the father said, what's wrong? And the child said, can't you see that I am burning? And then the, child, then the father felt his forehead and said, yes, you are. You know, We'll call the doctor. And then the child died. Um, so that it's not only the literal burning of the candle falling on the child's corpse, but a residue of a time when the child was still alive and could say, can't you see that I am burning? And he redreams that, redreams the child as alive and burning. That was extremely famous, and I think Bishop probably also had that in mind when she talked about the burning boy. Um, because that's not a phrase that Hemans uses. She doesn't call him the burning boy. She, said, she, she talks about the burning deck. But Bishop turns the burning deck <coughs> into the burning boy. And as I say, I think the things she's alluding to or remembering are the subtle poem, The Burning Babe, and the Freud dream, The Dream of the Burning Child, as it's called. Um, everyone assumes that the child in, Freud's, in the dream Freud is describing is male, um, but he doesn't say so. Um, he simply says a child. Um, so 
Southall's poem is, I in hoary winter's night stood shivering in the snow, surprised I was with sudden heat, which made my heart to glow, and lifting up a fearful eye to view what fire was near, a pretty babe, all burning bright, did in the air appear, who scorched with excessive heat, such floods of tears did shed, as though his floods should quench his flames, which with his tears were fed. Alas, quoth he, but newly born, in fiery heats I fry, he had none approach to warm their hearts or feel my fire. But I, my faultless breast, the furnace is, the fuel wounding thorns. So notice those are metaphors. My faultless breast is a furnace or is the furnace. Um, the fuel is wounding thorns. Love is the fire and sighs the smoke, the ashes shame and scorns. The fuel justice layeth on and mercy blows the coals. The metal in this furnace wrought are men's defiled souls. So in the furnace that is my body, um, the souls of men are being refashioned, is what the babe is saying. For which, as now on fire I am to work them to their good, so I'm on fire to do this, to help them, to work them to their good, so will I melt into a bath to wash them in my blood. Um, so who is this child? Yeah, good. Um, with this he vanished out of sight and swiftly shrunk away, and straight I call it unto mind that it was Christmas Day. Um, so it's an amazing image, which he then turns into um, a kind of not that great, but still resourceful moral um, emblem. But the image of the burning babe in the air, I think that's what Bishop picked up on. So let's look. We have like three minutes. Um, yes. Let's look at uh, the Yeats poem. This is actually a translation, but, at, but, but very different adaptation of um, a poem by, of a 16th century poem by the French poet Ronsard, um, who's actually one of the, the group of poets in France. Do people know who he is? Um, he was one of a group of poets in France. Um, du Bellay was the other um, really important one, who were known as the Pleiades. That is the um, the great constellation of poets, like the Pleiades, like the Sailing Seven in um, the Cradle Song. So he Yeats addresses his beloved and talks about the future. When you were old and gray and full of sleep and nodding by the fire. Take down this book. That is the book that this poem is in. Take down this book and slowly read and dream of the soft look your eyes had once and of their shadows deep. How many loved your moments of glad grace and loved your beauty with love false or true. But one man, namely Yeats, but one man loved the pilgrim soul in you and loved the sorrows of your changing face, and bending down beside the glowing bars, murmur a little sadly how love fled, capital L love, murmur a little sadly how love fled and paced upon the mountains overhead and hid his face amid a crowd of stars. So remember how love fled and hid his face among a crowd of stars. Love personified again. Um, all I'll draw your attention to now 
is that at the end of the second stanza, we hear how he loved the sorrows of her changing face. And then in the third stanza, it's love who hides his face amid a crowd of stars. Um, love gets personified. And in a sense, the question is, for whom? In The Boy Sit on the Burning Deck, love is personified for Bishop, who is, who is desperate at the loss of her beloved. Desperate at the loss of love, you could say. So she personifies that loss as love. Here, Yeats is saying that she will remember how love fled and went to the mountains and hid his face. And the question is, for whom in this <coughs> poem is love being personified? OK, read the intimations, of, but bring this sheet back. We'll look at a couple of others of these. But as I warned you, we're going very fast now. And anyone who hasn't yet handed 